Welcome everyone to this week's Policy and Practice Seminar, organized by the Political Science Department at UCL. I'm Robert Hazel, a professor in political science and the convener of these seminars. Tonight's topic is protecting future generations. How can we design our political institutions and our policymaking to better protect the interests of our children and grandchildren and those yet unborn? We have four very distinguished speakers. First, Professor Jonathan Boston, joining us all the way from Wellington in New Zealand, is going to explain the range of strategies available for enhancing the quality of long-term governance and policymaking. Our next three speakers are then going to talk about specific examples. Jako Kwasmanen from the Finnish Academy of Science will talk about Finland's Parliamentary Committee for the Future. Professor Ian Martin from Oxford will talk about the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations which he co-chaired with Pascal Lamy and about his book, Terra Incognita. And finally, Jill Rutter, former Director of Strategy and Sustainable Development at DEFRA, and now at the Institute for Government, will talk about climate change and the Institute's recent net zero report. Jonathan is going to talk for 10 minutes at the start, the three discussants for five minutes each, and we'll then have a panel discussion for 20 to 30 minutes before we open it up to Q&A. Please be understanding if your question's not selected, we may not be able to answer them all. The seminar will end at 7.15, or if the questions are still going strong at the latest by 7.30. So let me now invite my first speaker, Jonathan Boston, to talk about the strategies which governments have adopted to force them to think more systematically about the future. Jonathan, you're enormously welcome, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Robert. Thank you for setting up this session. Uh, it's an incredibly important topic area, and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, can I say greetings from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand? Uh, we are not quite uh, COVID-free, but, but almost, and I think we're second to uh, Taiwan in terms of our overall performance. Um, let me screen share, and I will um, then, uh, if I can get my... Oh dear, here we go. Slides to work, slideshow from the beginning. All right, so this session is about protecting future generations as Robert has indicated. Um, and this is uh, an, a huge topic. And I'm just going to talk very briefly about some specific matters. The first point to emphasize is that we do have uh, significant moral responsibilities to protect the interests of future generations and indeed to preserve, protect, and enhance the quality uh, of our environment. Uh, I'm starting from a, a key uh, ethical assumption that human beings have equal moral value irrespective of the time of their birth, so that somebody born in, in 2100 ha has an equal right to uh, a good existence uh, as somebody born uh, 100 years ago. And the problem we have, as most listeners will be aware, is at the moment we have demonstrably unsustainable policies in a variety of areas, and we are inflicting serious widespread, and in some cases irreversible harm, particularly ecological harm, uh, which will have profound implications for the future. So the question is, how do we, how do, we do better? How do we better protect uh, our long-term futures and uh, the, futures, the, the interests of, of future generations? What are the what are the barriers to doing that? And what are the options for overcoming those barriers? 
So just reflecting very briefly on why protecting uh, the interests of future generations is difficult and why we haven't been doing uh, particularly well, particularly in relation to uh, ecological <clears throat> sustainability. I've listed on this slide just some of a wide range of factors that contribute to poor long-term governance. And I'm not going to go through them in any detail, uh, but let me just highlight a few. So first of all, uh, we're faced with being human and being human involves amongst other things, having cognitive biases, being somewhat impatient, having attention deficits and so on. And, and, and this applies, of course, to all human beings to some degree, uh, but also to those who make decisions. And those who are making decisions are faced with a range of epistemic problems. Uh, often deep uncertainty, significant knowledge gaps, uh, policy complexity, uh, the problem of, of actually being able to uh, assess uh, the options carefully, uh, and, and then living in a world where there's conflicting values uh, and conflicting intertemporal preferences. Added to that, there are a multiplicity of political barriers uh, that operate uh, at the global level in terms of poor coordinating mechanisms for protecting uh, global public goods, uh, but also, of course, at the national and subnational level. Uh, and, and there's a multiplicity of, of factors here which, which, which tend to mitigate against, or militate against, I should say, uh, uh, the capacity for governments uh, to take the sorts of measures that are needed uh, to protect uh, long-term interests. So maybe we can come back and discuss some of those more fully uh, in question times. The other thing just to emphasize at this point is that some types of policy problems are, are much harder to address than others. For example, there's this category of wicked policy problems. Uh, there's also the category of policy problems known as creeping problems or slow burner problems. These are ones that tend to be out of sight and out of mind and, 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 and gr gradually grow uh, but the problem is if you don't address some of these problems early enough, then you're faced with very significant uh, costs uh, and sometimes, sometimes irreversible effects as we're witnessing, for example, with uh, climate change, biodiversity loss uh, and um, plastic pollution. So how might we uh, enhance the way we protect future generations? And I'm thinking about this particularly at the governmental level, the national level, uh, perhaps rather than the international level. So the first thing to say is that there are no silver bullets. Um, there is no sort of magic solution here because there are such a wide range of, of, of reasons why we find it difficult to protect future generations. There's going to be no single solution. That means we need to have a broad range of strategies that are uh, uh, context specific, that, that take into account the particular characteristics of uh, any particular jurisdiction and that operate at multiple levels of, of governance within that jurisdiction. I've listed here some of the possible strategies that can be applied that can, at least on the margin, help us to better protect future generations. And they include obviously improving the evidence base through um, better scientific research uh, in the social sciences and natural sciences, having better monitoring of, of outcomes uh, in improving the quality of our uh, policy analysis. We can also seek to improve foresight through multiple techniques, and uh, I, I think Jaco will speak a little bit about that. We can also help to strengthen the voices for the future, particularly institutional voices, and many countries have specific institutions designed to speak for future interests, commission, commissioners for the future, long-term planning units, uh, commissioners for children, and so forth. Well, uh, 
we need to boost these because the voice of the future is, is at the moment uh, muted and, and needs strengthening. Another option is to insulate specific decisions from short-term political pressures to enable decision makers to actually give more weight uh, to long-term considerations. And we've done that in monetary policy around the world with central banks having significant discretion with respect to the implementation of monetary policy. And it's possible to do this in other areas, though that does raise questions about democratic accountability and control. Um, another option is to uh, seek through various means to build an authorizing environment, a, a, a political culture uh, that, that values uh, uh, prudent long-term governance and, and which shares commitments to uh, critical long-term goals. One of the vital ingredients for that is having a high level of political trust so that governments can actually do deals uh, across the political spectrum. And unfortunately, we're living in a time of low political trust. And finally, um, but by no means last, um, we can seek to strengthen and expand the use of a range of what are called policy commitment devices across multiple levels of government, across multiple uh, policy domains and at different stages uh, in the policy cycle. And just to conclude my remarks, I'll say a little bit about the, this area of policy commitment devices. I might say that um, uh, Ian's uh, excellent report some six years ago, um, uh, now for the long term, uh, covers some of this material, as, as does the work of, of people like Jill and Yako. Um, first of all, policy commitment devices can take many forms. They can be constitutional, trying to uh, protect, for example, uh, a healthy, safe environment, uh, or, or, or they can be non-constitutional, just ordinary law. They, they, they can be legal uh, and non-legal. For example, non-legal commitment devices can include multi-party agreements on big issues like how do we fund uh, uh, retirement incomes or, or, or whatever. And they can be substantive in the sense that they require governments to do certain sorts of things in particular ways, or they can be procedural. They simply require governments to to, uh, to, to take some action, but not actually specify what that action uh, needs to be. In terms of, of, of the sort of legal uh, commitment devices, I've listed uh, a series, and let me just go through this very quickly. First of all, you can have legal requirements for governmental bodies to consider the interests of future generations when making decisions as part of normal policy processes, and that can apply to a wide range of policy areas. Secondly, you can have legal requirements for governments to adhere to substantive policy rules and, and principles, uh, principles of fiscal responsibility, which are written into public finance acts around the world, or principles of environmental sustainability, which are likewise widely, widely used. You can likewise have legal requirements for governments to adhere to the precautionary principle somehow defined. You can have legal requirements for governments to maintain uh, or enhance specific capital stocks, uh, natural capital, for example, you can have legal requirements for governments to set long-term policy targets in specific areas, for example, reducing child poverty or reducing greenhouse gas emissions or whatever. And of course, governments all over the world uh, do this. And then you can have legal requirements for regular independent risk assessments and for regular independent long-term policy reviews uh, in specific policy domains and so on. Now, there's a wide range of other policy commitment devices, um, and I haven't got time to go through those. But the, the, the basic aim of a policy commitment device is to, is to try and reach agreement on some important long-term goal uh, and then lock in political commitment to that, make it more difficult for governments to renege. Now, having said all that, I appreciate that governments around the world have made widespread use of these commitment devices. And it's pretty clear <laughs> that in many cases, we're still not doing very well. And I think that highlights my fundamental point earlier, 
which is that there's no magic solution. Uh, that this is a really hard area and we have to just continue to try uh, to do better. And as we focus right now on this short-term problem of, of COVID, uh, this current global pandemic, it's really, really important that we don't lose sight of the really big long-term challenges we face, particularly in the environmental area. So thank you for that. I'll, I'll stop at this point and uh, pass it back to you, Robert. Thank you, Jonathan. That's a brilliant introduction. Um, you covered a huge amount of ground in your 10 minutes. Our next speaker is Jako Kwasmanen from the Finnish Academy of Science. Jako, over to you. Thank you, Robert. Um, I'll just share one slide. Uh, here we go. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I will use my five minutes in discussing uh, one specific institutional initiative uh, that is novel to the context of Finland. And uh, as Jonathan mentioned, there's no um, just silver bullet to institutions, but this is just to highlight one specific example uh, of, of how future can be entrenched closer to the policymaking process. Uh, so the Finnish Parliamentary Committee for the Future was established in 1993, and it has 17 uh, members of the parliament as members of the committee. Uh, so it is a standing committee in the parliament, uh, and it basically serves as an in-house think tank for uh, looking at future themes, uh, science and technology policy in Finland. Um, and uh, it serves as the, its counterpart in the government is the prime minister. So it has very close link to the highest level of the government. Uh, so basically, um, and when Jonathan was saying that uh, you, you basically there's no silver bullet and you need to look at the context and institutional context. Uh, but I think if you look at underneath a certain kind of uh, functions, of these specific institutions and what Jonathan was also referring to in his commitment devices uh, talk, I think uh, here you can see that the, the primary function of the committee is to increase uh, and enhance deliberation about the future. So bring imagination and deliberation about the future uh, close uh, to policy making. Um, so one of the legal functions of the, the committee is to prepare the parliament's uh, response to the government's report on the future, which also, uh, in fact, is another novel initi institutional initiative from Finland. So basically, every incoming government uh, is uh, obligated to draft a report on its chosen topic on a strategic uh, theme related to between 10 to 20 years in the future. Uh, the government drafts the report on the future, which is then sent to the parliament for deliberation and it's received by the parliamentary committee for the future. Uh, and it's discussed uh, uh, in the parliament and it has a broader national deliberation as well. So the, for example, the previous report that was drafted was on future of work. So we had a very broad uh, national deliberation about the future of work uh, that was triggered by the government report on the future. Um, and uh, the, the committee drafts the response to the government. Uh, so it's basically, it's a dialogical uh, deliberative uh, device. Um, apart from that, it also prepares statements uh, related to future on, on uh, to other committees on, on governments, other reports. It drafts its own foresight reports. For example, the latest reports have been on, on genetic engineering and on, uh, on COVID. 
Uh, it, uh, there's also uh, reports on, for example, on crowdsourcing policy experimentation on Russia, uh, on blockchain and these type of topics. Um, apart from that, it also is the primary receiver uh, in the parliament on the government's uh, SDG implementation reports. Uh, so um, it's very hard to establish uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the actual impact of the, the committee and whether it's uh, a success or not. So, uh, so there are some, some uh, uh, you know, there are some different aspects to this. One is obviously the the government the committee does not have very strong uh, mandate from a legal perspective, so it basically serves as a as an in-house think tank within the government uh, the the parliament. But on the other side, uh, there's also that it gives a, a basically a forum a space for looking at long-term issues within the parliament. So, uh, so it basically, it is a space for thinking things bigger and thinking things more long-term. And I think it's noteworthy to say that uh, the uh, two former prime ministers have been members of the committee for the future and looking at their party manifestos uh, when they went to the general elections, uh, the party manifestos have a very strong emphasis on future oriented topics. So while this is very hard to quantify and measure, it nevertheless, I think it, it, it serves, uh, and I think there is a broad consensus that even without it having a very strong legal mandate, it serves uh, a very important uh, overall deliberative function in the Finnish uh, context. There's obviously a lot more institutions and, the, the, and it's also uh, connected to the uh, National Foresight Network. It's connected to the, uh, the University of Turku Future Studies Center, which also uh, serves as an academic uh, uh, arm for thinking about futures, uh, serves uh, also provides a, an MA on future studies. So there's a kind of a, it's part of a broader network of, of institutions that try to uh, to uh, in increase the future thinking in Finland uh, in the different aspects of policymaking. But that's my five minutes. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jaco. And our next speaker from Oxford is Ian Goldin. Ian, please forgive me. When I introduced this seminar, I called you Ian Martin. I was getting it confused with the name of the commission, the Oxford Martin Commission, that you're about to tell us about. So Ian Goldin from Oxford. Ian, uh, could you unmute yourself? Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to be able to contribute to this. Uh, the Oxford Martin Commission report now for the long term is on the Oxford Martin School website, and I encourage everyone uh, to take a look at that because it really tried to grapple with this question of how can we embed longer term thinking. And of course, COVID-19 has highlighted the significance of that subsequently. Um, what we're seeing, not least, is a sacrifice of young people for old. Uh, and the big question, therefore, is how will that sacrifice be repaid as the social life, the education, uh, the job prospects, and a massive debt is being inherited uh, by the young uh, without much consultation with them. Willingly, uh, but uh, it's a massive long-term obligation. And of course, record low interest rates 
also mean that the pensions that young people are going to have to accumulate are going to require 100 times more savings uh, than they would for someone of my generation. So massive implications implicit. What we did in the report was reviewed uh, all existing uh, attempts to embed the longer term thinking in uh, decision making. We reviewed successes uh, and we try to take account of failures. What the successes have in common is typically a coalition of willing actors who are prepared to do things often uh, despite governments uh, not willing to act. Governments can create institutions like the House of Lords or Senates, uh, like uh, commissions, like youth commissioners, like many of these things, but they're only as good as the politicians are prepared to uh, give them the strength to carry forward. And um, that's true of companies as well, of course, uh, who are also uh, bedeviled by long-term thinking. Within governments, the intelligence agencies, central banks, and some uh, might be thinking long-term, but as we've seen with central banks at the moment, for example, uh, there's some big trade-offs, uh, pushing interest rates negative uh, because they're trying to meet current debt needs uh, might not be in the long-term interests. Uh, when it comes to climate change, uh, that is particularly a big consideration. The decisions we take today dramatically affecting all dimensions uh, of the future. No country is an island. And what we highlighted in the report uh, is that any amount of long-term thinking for an individual country uh, or individual community uh, is unlikely to be effective uh, because all the great factors affecting our futures, wherever we are in the world, even if we're in the strongest country like the US, are likely to be influenced by global forces, by technologies, uh, by events like pandemics or climate change, uh, which happen beyond our borders. But the opportunities also come from elsewhere. And so a key takeaway of the commission is a need uh, for much more joined up thinking, uh, interdisciplinary thinking within our countries, uh, within our communities, but also more joined up globally, uh, because in the end, uh, the factors that affect young people, the factors that affect future generations, are the factors which are going to come uh, from elsewhere. How one does that is a key question, um, given the weaknesses of the international system. And there too, we point to the possibilities for coalitions, uh, coalitions of actors, which don't always have to be governments, can be cities, can be companies, uh, can be institutions like universities and others. But in most cases, 20% of the actors can make 80% of the difference. And there are plenty of examples from Greater Thunberg uh, to the IPCC uh, to many others of how individual actors that are not governments in the first instance uh, change the future uh, for the better. Of course, there are many examples of how they change it for the worse as well. Uh, and there we come to the future of globalization and the pandemic. Uh, all of these forces for good can also be forces for bad. The technologies can be used for good and bad. The vectors of globalization, as I uh, wrote in Terra Incognita, the new book that I've done with Rock Mugger, are also the vectors uh, of the spreading of super spreaders like pandemics, like financial crises, like cyber viruses, like antibiotic resistance, and of course, like climate change. And so how one manages these interconnections, how one ensures that we spread good ideas, how we spread good financial flows, 
good energy flows, etc., becomes absolutely key. Protecting future generations requires an understanding of the underlying forces driving our society. And no amount of parliamentary conversation, no matter how great it is, can protect societies unless we are protecting the world as well and engaged in these broader forces. What this panel represents is the cross-section of the things that are necessary. And I hope for that reason uh, that it helps us understand things in a deeper and more effective way. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And thank you also for keeping commendably to your five minutes and covering a lot of ground in doing so. And our next speaker uh, who's rejoined us is Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government. Uh, Jill, if you'd unmute yourself. Um, you warned me that you've got a dodgy internet connection um, so let's hope that it holds up for the next five minutes while you're talking to us. Jill. Okay, I'm going to hope that. Sorry about that. I live in central London, so it's slightly absurd that I have an absolutely terrible internet connection. But anyway, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, the UK's experience on climate change, which is an example, I think, of some of the things that Jonathan was talking about, some of the devices. Um, uh, not least use of policy commitment devices and building some institutional forces to try to focus a bit more on the longer term. And as Robert said, the Institute for Government in September produced a report on what the government needed to do now uh, if it was going to be serious about the target it set itself uh, as part of Theresa May's legacy of being a net zero emitter by 2050. That is now the law in the UK. The Interesting thing is that the uh, setup that the UK enacted in 2008 in the Climate Change Act, which there is also an Institute for Government case study, how we got there, uh, has actually been quite a successful UK export. In 2008, the UK became the first nation uh, to set a legally binding target for emissions reduction. Uh, California had done it already, but California has not yet seceded from the US, so that's why we can say the UK was the first, uh, first country to do that. But what's more interesting in some ways than the target it set at that stage, the target that was set was originally set at 60%. During the passage of the bill, it was uh, upgraded to 80%, uh, an 80% reduction compared to 1990 levels, now upgraded through a statutory instrument and after one and a half hours debate to uh, net zero, so 100% effectively, depending on what you have in the net. It was the institutional arrangements that were put in place. The most notable part of that institutional structure was the creation of an independent, well, as independent as an arm's length body created by statute in the UK can be, uh, almost, it's not a parliamentary body, but an independent committee on climate change designed to be an expert committee. So hitting up some of uh, Jonathan's thing about bringing in the technocrats, um, an independent committee uh, chaired in the first instance by Adair Turner, former Director General of the CBI, designed deliberately by its architects, not just to be a sort of bunch of environmentalists, but to be people who could be taken seriously, have credibility with people who cared about the economy, and in particular, the Treasury, which up until that date in the UK had been seen as a bit of a barrier to action on climate change, with two broad functions. One function was to advise government uh, on the five yearly carbon budgets required to deliver the trajectory to net zero. It's very easy uh, for governments to look really good 
by setting a hugely ambitious, very, very long distance target. Much harder actually to concentrate the minds on the actions that need to be taken in the short term to deliver that target. So one of the roles of the Climate Change Committee was to say to the government, you can't just assume a magic bullet in 2049. You need to actually be taking actions over the period. And we're going to tell you what the right trajectory for emissions reduction is. Uh, some other nations, Scotland, which also is overseen by the Climate Change Committee, chose annual targets, the decision in the UK, the UK government, which for some purposes also means the English government, was to go for these five-year periods. So the Climate Change Committee had an advisory role. It also had an oversight role. So it produces annual reports on progress towards the UK's climate change mitigation target and reports every two years to Parliament on climate on our uh, readiness to adapt to climate change. Because one of the things all you climate change experts out there know is that even if we do succeed in delivering our climate change trajectory and reducing emissions to net zero, that doesn't let us off the hook for adapting to the already committed climate change which is a result of the sins of our predecessors. So we have to both adapt and mitigate. They are not alternatives. So what's the track record? Well, at one level, this has been a successful UK export. This institutional framework has been exported elsewhere, not least to Jonathan's very own New Zealand. Usually the exports are in the other direction of interesting New Zealand experiments, but this went that way. Um, so it's been seen actually as one of the sort of more interesting ways of trying to commit. I think it would be fair to say that having this institutional presence probably preserves some of the actions on climate change during the years of austerity, the coalition government, when remember the Department for Energy and Climate Change was headed up by a Liberal Democrat, first Chris Hume, then Ed Davey, uh, and when the Conservative government, although there's another point made by Jonathan, the original Climate Change Act, remember, passed Parliament with only three votes against, was the result of, even in our very adversarial system, very cross-party consensus. But even when George Osborne and David Cameron became a bit more sceptical about what they referred to as, uh, in inverted commas, green crap. So I think it did provide a bit of institutional buttressing. And we've made more progress. And the UK actually is, through a bit of a luck, through luck and judgment, a top performer on climate change. But against that, what hasn't it done? All the progress we've seen on emissions reduction in the UK has come effectively from the power sector. And you could actually say a much more effective force on that has first been the economics of the switch from uh, coal to gas. And secondly, the Department of Energy and Climate Change is quite successful electricity market reform, uh, powered partly by our climate targets, but also affected by the EU targets on renewables that we were committed to when we were EU members. We obviously aren't EU members anymore. Uh, the big advantage of EU targets over domestic targets is there is a genuinely independent enforcement mechanism that you can't just abolish if they get a bit inconvenient, which we could do at any point with the Climate Change uh, Committee, etc. Um, but obviously you can take the step of leaving the European Union, one which the UK has just taken, and that gets you out of that long-term regime. It's not managed to force climate change yet to the top of the agenda 
in either the housing department or the transport department, emissions in both those sectors have stalled. And indeed in transport, you've seen a growing inefficiency of the private vehicle stock with the rise of uh, SUVs. Um, so there's not been that much progress on that thing. I think the most notable thing, and I think this goes very interesting to what Yako was saying, I'm going to end up here, is the failure of this system to really get any purchase until very recently among parliamentarians. Uh, it's very noticeable how reluctant members of parliament are to debate climate change. It's quite interesting how little attention is paid beyond the dedicated committee that sort of has to look at these reports to actually pick up any of the, uh, any of the themes coming out of that. And I think that shows that it's very difficult to make positive action happen without some degree of political resonance and a, and a feeling that there is public consent for action. One of the most interesting things though, which is just going to be a more positive slot, is we've seen a really interesting recent initiative from six parliamentary committees who together commissioned a citizen's assembly on climate change, the climate assembly, which reported in early September. And I think for slightly reluctant politicians gave the quite interesting message that actually despite COVID, despite Brexit, despite everything else, there actually potentially was a bigger public constituency and more public willingness to act than nervy politicians, very frightened of the consequences of acting on climate change might have thought. Uh, that obviously was a hundred citizens who'd been through quite a long process as opposed to 60 plus million who hadn't, but I think it did suggest that braver politicians might have more political space to act. But without that, it's very difficult to tackle the long-term, however good your institutional setup is. Thank you, Jill. Um, we'll come back, I think, uh, to public demand uh, for tougher action uh, during the course of this discussion, but we're now going to discuss amongst the panel for 20 minutes or so, um, some of the issues raised. And I want to start, if I may, with uh, Jonathan Boston's opening and his final slide about legal commitments and to ask Jonathan, but also the rest of you, whether any of these things in any country you know of have been made justiciable or uh, is that uh, nirvana because uh, these are far too complex issues and the only, the only effective enforcement machinery is uh, the kind of thing that Jill has been describing of independent expert commissions doing uh, detailed monitoring, et cetera. Jonathan, do you want to go first on justiciable enforcement? Well, thank you, Robert. And just say thank you for the <clears throat> very interesting contributions from, uh, from Yako, Ian and, and Jill. And just before I answer your question, Robert, can I just un underscore what Ian was saying about the critical importance for international action um, I did focus primarily on the national level, but obviously, as Ian said, the very big drivers of uh, global change at the moment are outside the control of individual governments. And in order to protect global public goods, the atmosphere, oceans, etc., cetera, uh, requires global action. And the challenge we've got at the moment is that <clears throat> our multilateral institutions are under threat from populist movements and uh, and, and nationalism and so forth. So coming to your question, Robert, um, well, of course, in, in most jurisdictions that I'm familiar with, where you, where you have uh, legislation that's enacted, uh, then 
that legislation is justiciable through the court systems. Um, so here in New Zealand, for example, we have a Resource Management Act, which seeks to protect uh, uh, environmental uh, values of various kinds. And, and uh, that act has been the subject of a great deal of uh, uh, judicial um, review and, and uh, activity uh, since it was enacted almost 30 years ago. And, and the same would apply, I'm sure, in, in, in most other uh, jurisdictions of our type around the world. Um, the, the, uh, th 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 there is, of course, the question to what extent uh, the courts can, uh, how can I put it, be, be active <laughs> in pushing forward um, agendas to protect future interests. Um, uh, in the climate change area, which Jill has, has been speaking about, we've witnessed uh, an increasing level of activity by civil society organizations to take governments to court uh, to try and require them uh, to take more effective measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we've had the decision in the Netherlands, for example, in the last few years uh, from their highest court, uh, which has uh, in effect required the Dutch government to, to, to take more aggressive measures to, um, to, to reduce emissions. Now, th that, that decision obviously, and I'm not familiar with the Dutch legal system, but that decision uh, may not be, um, how can I put it, replicable in other jurisdictions. It would depend on their particular legal traditions and, and, and legislative frameworks. But could I just make, make one other comment? Um, while, while law matters and matters a great deal, and while I talk particularly about legal, if you like, commitment devices, uh, the non-legal side of it is absolutely vital as, as uh, well, Yako, Ian and, and Jill have all emphasized. And so we should, also, we should be thinking about the full range of, of mechanisms and instruments that governments have available to them. In the climate change area, Jill has rightly pointed out uh, a, a raft of mechanisms that, uh, well, they have a legal backing, but in the end, uh, they've been designed in ways that, that kind of uh, incentivize political action that might not otherwise occur. Just, just one other quick comment about Britain and climate change, Jill, and forgive me, I'm, I'm not trying to be unduly critical here. I, I'm a strong supporter of the British uh, Climate Change Act of 2008. But while Britain has managed to reduce its uh, emissions domestically, I understand that Britain is the largest importer of greenhouse gas emissions. So if you look at it on the consumption side, actually uh, things haven't changed much over the last 30 years. Essentially what's happened is that Britain has exported <laughs> its um, uh, emission, uh, emission production uh, to, the developed, uh, to the developing world uh, so that it now has lower emissions domestically, but they're produced somewhere else. Sorry, that's, a, that's sort of just a, <laughs> a, a kind of footnote in all this. Yeah, let's come next to you if you would unmute yourself, perhaps just to respond to that, but also tell us why in Britain we decided uh, as I understood your, uh, your introductory remarks, not to go down the road of judicial enforcement of our climate. Well, um, there, is a sort of, there is a sort of requirement, I think, in the Climate Change Act that at the end of the day, the UK could be forced to buy emissions credits if the Secretary of State fails to deliver, whether that would, at the end of the day, be deemed to be a good, uh, a good sort of use of public money, I think would depend on the government of the day and the political circumstances of the day. Um, we could never particularly see when we were putting through the Climate Change Act um, that the Secretary of State would sort of end up 
in jail or whatever for failing to meet the targets. That didn't seem very politically realistic. I think what's quite interesting, uh, just one or two comments on that, clearly where there has been, and Jonathan's right on you know, embedded emissions, UK, uh, if you take total emissions or whatever, then it's not as good a story because we're a massive importer uh, of uh, things. But I still think it's quite an interesting, I think the decarbonization of the power sector actually is quite an interesting story. Nonetheless, we didn't have to do that. We could have actually been decarbonizing the power sector and still importing quite a lot of emissions as well. Uh, so I do think that is a degree of progress. Um, uh, just a few comments on judicial review. The most effective form of judicial review has been frankly through the European Court. And that has been quite a major actor in holding governments, whether you can as long-term or not, but to improved environment performance. I mean, the e yeah. And that is where not just the UK government, but a number of governments have found themselves in trouble over things like air quality targets, water quality, and things like that. Uh, we did a report at the Institute for Government uh, looking at what were the most frequent causes of action by the European Court, uh, by the European Commission, taking people to the European Court of Justice. And certainly for the UK, that was the environment was a standout area where you tended to be taken to the European Court of Justice. And yeah, you could argue that is one of the reasons why ministers are very keen to ensure no future ECJ jurisdiction. Uh, so there are judicial reviews there. Um, domestically, it was quite interesting. DEFRA, when I was there, was judicially reviewed after our failure to meet the government's legislated target on fuel poverty. Government had a commitment to eradicate fuel poverty, which is sort of assumed it could go in the right direction simply by it, by sort of riding a wave of reducing fuel prices. Then in uh, 2005-06, fuel prices started going up and fuel poverty started going in the wrong direction. We were judicially reviewed by Friends of the Earth. And our lawyers were quite nervous that we would be forced to bring in new measures. But actually courts are incredibly reluctant to interfere with government spending priorities. And you'll have already seen that this government, and Robert, you know more about this than the rest of us, is very worried about what it sees as policy making by lawyers. We recently had the, uh, the court decision on striking down the third runway expansion on the grounds the government hadn't actually assessed it against its Paris commitments on climate change. But we, have seen, we are seeing sort of potentially moves by ministers to say, we aren't just leaving the European Court of Justice to get out of uh, judges who try and impose policy on us to have our own judges do that. And to say that we don't like judicial policy making. Uh, so I think justiciability is, as Jonathan says, a rather undesirable last resort. It's not a great place to be that you can't do that. But you know, the UK is setting up the Office of Environmental Protection that is supposed to be able to enforce against the UK government and other public authorities. So we will wait to see what precise powers it ends up when the Environment Bill finally gets through Parliament. Thank you. Um, you all talked in different ways, particularly Jonathan and Ian, about the vital importance of international cooperation um, because one country cannot begin to do this alone. Um, and we've mentioned a lot the uh, enforcement activity uh, and other things of the European Union. Ian, coming to you, can I ask you whether there are any strong examples elsewhere in the world of transnational cooperation? 
between neighboring countries or groups of countries? Or is the EU a world leader in this respect? Um, the EU is a world leader, which is why I think it's one of the many tragedies that we're leaving it. But um, the, you know, the EU is remarkable because countries have given up national sovereignty in key areas of the economy, of migration, of foreign policy and defense to the central institutions, all willingly, uh, and clearly are all benefiting enormously uh, economically and in other ways, not least we're seeing that in the pandemic now, with 750 billion euros being av made available to the southern countries. Um, so that the EU is enlarging, there are hundreds of regional trade agreements around the world. There's something like 60 in Africa. Uh, and there are some successes like SADC and ECOWAS and others uh, in this. And of course, you have them in, 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 in ASEAN and, and other areas, but nothing as comprehensive. Um, it does, you know, just a couple of co broader comments. Uh, International law, I think, is, a, is an extremely significant area in thinking about the future uh, generation's rights. Um, but it does raise the question of, uh, do people abide by it? And, um, you know, treat, there, there's something like 20,000 treaties uh, that are ignored in the world, uh, ranging from protection of the environment and oceans to, to others. Um, and if big players like the US, uh, it's like having a, a player on a football field um, who ignores the red card uh, when it's shown. If the international referees that everyone's agreed are going to be the referees don't have power, uh, then uh, the system falls apart. My own sense is that that is absolutely key. And it, it raises another question, which is what can you do when big governments don't play by the rules? Uh, that have been agreed. And I think one of the other key areas of law which uh, is neglected in this respect is consumer law uh, and law with respect to businesses. I mean, it was interesting to see Rio Tinto having to um, apologize, make good and fire its CEO because they destroyed a natural heritage site in Australia. Um, that sort of accountability uh, is, I think, beginning to play through shareholders uh, and other groups uh, and that growing power is significant, but so too with consumers. Consumer is rebelling against um, unfair working practices, exploitation, and inc increasingly transparency is going to be absolutely key. Future generations and we can't act on their rights if we don't know what's going on, whether it's a carbon footprint and the interesting point that Jonathan made about what is really the carbon footprint of consumers in the UK, for example, uh, or whether it's where we get our things from. It's also important, and I'm always caught in this tussle, that we recognize that people can't have a future if they, if they die of hunger. Uh, they can't have a future if they have no education. What, Amartya would have called capabilities, uh, the freedoms and the capabilities. And so that trade-off between setting our own standards of what we think a future should be uh, in areas and the ability to give to others around the world. And unfortunately, COVID-19 uh, is the biggest development disaster of our lifetimes and has set back the SDGs immeasurably. And so when we think about future generations, let's not think about ourselves only, Let's think about the world and actually 90% of the future generations are not in our countries represented on the screen, certainly. 99% um, most probably, uh, they're gonna be elsewhere, one in three children being born in Africa for over the next 10 years, for example. Um, so 
that I think places it in perspective um, as well. Thank you. Now, before I ask my last question of the panel, let me just say to the audience, we're going to come to Q&A very shortly. So please, uh, if you have questions, put them in the Q&A function uh, to Abby and she'll then feed them through to me. Um, but finally, uh, let's go from the question about uh, international or global cooperation uh, to the opposite extreme and what makes some countries world leaders um, in terms of thinking uh, systematically about the future. And in doing my homework um, for this session, I was, I was struck by the coincidence uh, of our first two speakers, Jonathan from New Zealand and Jakob from Finland, both of you coming from countries with quite small populations, five and a half million in Finland, five million in New Zealand, countries which have long had, well, uh, in the case of Finland, a very long time, New Zealand for the last 30 years or so, proportional voting systems, um, which create a different kind of politics in terms of quite often having coalition governments uh, and therefore creating a slightly more consensual or, or cross-party political culture. Um, do you think those have been important factors um, in New Zealand and Finland being world leaders um, and therefore they are by definition almost non-exportable to much larger countries like the US or the UK, um, which are not only much bigger in population terms, but also because of our voting system, uh, we have uh, traditionally a much more adversarial or majoritarian political culture. Jaco, do you want to go first on this? And then Jonathan. Uh, thank you, thank you, Robert. Uh, that, that's an important and, and interesting question. And I think that uh, looking back at the, uh, and this is a topic uh, that I have thought about quite a bit and uh, and uh, when, when overall in, in Finland, when we discuss the, uh, the, the future proofness or future preparedness of, of uh, our society and try to look at the, the drivers, the positive drivers of it, um, it's, uh, it, there are high hypotheses to it, but there's not a, obviously we cannot immediately establish whether those hypotheses are actually true or not because we don't have access to the counterfactual uh, in our own countries uh, which make it hard but nevertheless uh, the, the the history the political history of Finland uh, is related to um, after the second world war of having to pay uh, the one of the highest uh, uh, war um, uh, re what is the English word for that remunerations uh, the, uh, the the war payments to Russia after uh, the Soviet Union after uh, basically on on paper losing the war, uh, which made us having to look at very long term issues and having to work as as one as a society. But also uh, this was uh, uh, when juggling during the Cold War, juggling between uh, Russia and the United States, the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, the Finland had to be very pragmatic and very uh, consensual. Uh, and uh, the, there is a sense of, uh, of pragmatism, a history of pragmatism, a history of, of entrepreneurialism that, uh, this, that came from the necessity of having to pay back uh, the, the war reparations uh, after the, the Second War, Second World War. And, and uh, the, the homogeneity of Finnish society, I believe it is a positive driver 
or long-term thinking. Uh, that is the reality, I believe. The, the, the political culture is somewhat homogenous, uh, which is uh, breaking up uh, in many ways at the moment, uh, which is not necessarily in some always a bad thing, but at the same time, we're seeing a paradoxical effect to it, uh, I think so. The, 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 uh, we're seeing a, a very dramatic change in the political discourse, which is, I believe, that is detrimental to our, our long-term uh, governance effort, efforts. Um, but we're at the same time, we're seeing uh, the rise of pluralism and, and positive aspects, which is related to the kind of uh, breaking down of, of, of social, you know, uh, dominant norms that is, you know, liberating a lot of, of marginal groups. So this is a this is a, a tricky situation that we're facing. But I think that what you're what you were referring to in your question, I I believe that that is the right hypothesis. Uh, that it is uh, the culture has been beneficial uh, to long term thinking, and now we're thinking at the moment. So this is an ongoing national discussion. If with this paradoxical effect, how can we actually save the long term thinking and and, and long term uh, governance of Finland? Yeah. Now, lots of questions coming in the Q&A, which is great. So we'll come to those very shortly. But I'm going to give Jonathan and Jill the last word from the panel. Uh, and Jill, I'm bringing you in because I'm going to add a twist to my question. Not only are Finland and New Zealand countries with small populations and PR voting systems, it happens they're both countries also with female political leaders and quite young female politicians. And again, is, is that simply a coincidence? Or do we think that female politicians might be better um, at thinking about the long term and encouraging um, their governments and their people to do so? Jonathan and then Jill. Gosh, so Robert, let me make some quick comments. The first is I agree with pretty well everything Yako has said, uh, and he made the point about counterfactuals. It's very difficult to know what would have happened otherwise if we'd had a different electoral system in New Zealand over the last 30 years. Second key point, though, to make about New Zealand is that in most areas, sadly, we are not world leaders. Uh, if you look at our environmental performance across all the key areas, uh, water, climate, biodiversity, loss, and so on, we've been doing very badly. Our emissions, unlike the United Kingdom, have not fallen. In fact, our gross emissions are up about 20% over the last 30 years, and our net emissions are up over 60% over the last 30 years. And we import a lot of emissions. So, so, you know, we've not been doing very well environmentally. Socially, we've not been doing very well. We have quite high poverty rates. We have significant inequality, um, and so on and so on. We've been underinvesting in uh, infrastructure so that we have huge infrastructure deficits at the moment. The only areas where you could say we've done tolerably well is, is in respect of our economic policy management, at least from a, like a short-term perspective. We've maintained um, fiscal discipline over most of the last 30 years until the COVID crisis. And so we have low net public debt, which is which is positive. But while having low net public debt is is good, if you've got large social deficits and large environmental deficits, then well, um, <laughs> you you may not really think you're doing very well when you look at things in the totality. Um, on on MMP, uh, Robert, very quickly, um, it has of course forced parties to negotiate, which does potentially MMP sorry proportional voting system. Uh, yes, our proportional representation system is known as mixed member proportional or MMP. Sorry. Yes, um, it, it has forced parties uh, in the main to negotiate uh, 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 within the parliament to get majorities. Um, but we've now just elected our first single party uh, uh, majority 
party with uh, the Labour Party having 64 seats in a 120-seat parliament. I never thought this would happen, Robert. Uh, part of the logic for proportional representation was to avoid this sort of outcome, but, 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 but there we go. We have an extremely popular prime minister um, in, in Jacinda Ardern. And indeed the Labour Party, going back to your point about women, the Labour Party uh, now, the membership of the, of the parliamentary party is 55% women and we will have about a 45% women in the parliament as a whole. So, so a significant, a really, really significant shift from a, from a gender uh, equity point of view uh, in, in recent times. Um, uh, you know, in thinking about the electoral systems, quick point, to what extent do they change the incentive structures and, and to what extent do they uh, shift political culture or merely reflect political culture? I, I think they probably mainly reflect political culture, uh, but but they do alter the incentive structure. So potentially, potentially you have the capacity uh, to get to get more uh, long term thinking. And mm -hmm. and finally, just on 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 the on the women, <laughs> I think it's simply an accident of history, <laughs> Robert, that we have a woman prime minister at the moment, and that Finland does. Uh, things could be very different. Um, uh, we're just fortunate we've got. I think uh, a very capable woman prime minister uh, with a lot of a lot of virtues and qualities that um, it would be nice to see uh, replicated more around the world. Indeed, lucky you. I wish we could export many into our dance. Jill, last word. Uh, I think I'm not going to get drawn into the women question. I mean, I think what women have shown during the COVID crisis is actually they're probably more effective communicators around this than some of their male counterparts and I find it easier to turn on things like empathy than some of their male counterparts do. But women can be bad prime ministers too, she said. So it's a bit of an equal opportunity thing. Actually, the question I was going to ask um, Ian was a slightly different question, which is about, I mean, one of the things that I remember politicians saying when talking about climate change uh, before the 2010 election here was, um, was they're all saying, well, we all know we need to act, but we really can't act because we can't sell this to the electorates. And one of the questions I think is whether non-democracies or limited democracies, you know, where one party is fairly guaranteed to stay in power for quite a long time, find it easier to tackle long-term policies because they aren't aiming at the next election and making sure that they can show a positive balance sheet there. Um, Jonathan and I had this discussion somewhere else and his example was people like Yako as the models for governments that could think long term and mine was the government of Singapore which could think 20, 30 years ahead because they knew they'd still be in power. Yeah, All other things being equal 20 to 30 years ahead. So I wonder whether Ian, uh, Ian thought that there was any sort of comparative advantage in feeling the pressure of democracy slightly less than maybe some of our uh, our governments do in the West. Ian, quick word from you. And perhaps in your answer, you could also reflect on the performance of the EU, because arguably it's not subject to the same very direct democratic pressures as national governments. And that might be one reason why it's been able to take bolder action on climate change than a national government could on its own. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that um, less democratic governments have done better on this. Uh, and Singapore is the classic example. 
uh, but China also. And you see not only on um, the broader long-term thinking, but their capacity to transition to zero carbon, uh, the commitments that the president's made, their capacity to bounce back from uh, COVID are being demonstrated very clearly. Um, and they can build more high-speed rail in a year than we can in 40, uh, in, or in fact, in, ever in the UK. Um, <laughs> so that, that's what you get. Um, it, I mean, two counterexamples. Countries like South Korea, in fiercely democratic, uh, have been able to create very long-term strategies in terms of consistency on the development of industries. Mm -hmm. Now the Green New Deal, 80 billion um, US dollars, going into fully digital, full employment, and um, uh, full carbon transition. Uh, and I think that'll be sustained over the democratic conflicts of which are very intense in Korea. So I think governments can do it if you find bipartisan commitment, and that comes from citizens in the end. It doesn't, it's not magic by the politicians who always say, we know what to do, but we don't know how to get elected if we do it. Um, that's just an excuse and pushes it back onto the voters and say, well, why don't you vote for the voters that will, for the politicians that will do it? Um, and the other thing that we need to bear in mind is that even countries that seem absolutely incapable of doing it, like the UK at the moment, at other times, or the US, at other times in their history, were absolute world leaders in this. You know, the UK after the Second World War created the long-term system with the Bretton Woods, Keynes, and all of that. Roosevelt in the US, the vision that was behind the the New Deal and uh, with Churchill reconstruction and development, including for Finland. Uh, so that we have had times in our history which have been fiercely democratic. Churchill lost power, but that commitment was maintained uh, in 1952 by the new government, the welfare state and everything else, because it was bipartisan, the support for that, uh, that and it was absolutely demanded after the suffering of the world, uh, of the Second World War. So I think, it is easier, but I don't think it lets democratic governments off the hook, and I particularly don't think it lets voters off the hook. Uh, we get the governments in the end that we vote for. Uh, big test coming up uh, very soon in the US, and um, uh, you know we shouldn't be surprised if populists don't act in the long term. That's their business, is in a sense, is not to. Uh, uh, and, sorry, on the on the European Union, just very briefly, yes, I think it, it's one of the strong points of the European Union. It does, it is a bridge from the short term, both because it operates on a completely different political cycle to the national governments. National governments come and go, and the European Union is still the same. It does transition, but over a different cycle, because the Council of Ministers and Presidents is different, to a very, very powerful commission, and because it has tons of money. I mean, it's not a lot by EU budget standards, but the European Investment Bank is by far the biggest bank outside of China in the world and makes very long-term decisions regarding infrastructure in Europe, for example. That really matters. Yeah, great. Now, we must come to Q&A, um, and I can see four questions on my screen um, from Emil Wasim, from Chiara Gerosa, and from Ewan Grant. Um, and I'm going to call on them in that order. So, Emil Wasim, uh, would you like to unmute and say your question to the panel? And I think I'm going to read out the question uh, because we're not hearing it. So, uh, Emil Wasim is asking, 
how can we enhance political trust from the citizens' point of view? And what can political and governance institutions do to enhance the political trust of the citizens? Um, who'd like to go first on this? Um, let me ask uh, Yako uh, to have a crack at this one, and then perhaps Ian, and then we'll move on to Chiara's questions. Thanks, Robert, and thanks, Emil. Uh, I think this is a crucial question, and I think this is a uh, this is also a very hard question because uh, um, I think uh, in in COVID response, we've seen that uh, trust is essential for effective uh, uh, governance. Uh, and uh, and I think that the countries who have which have high trust uh, have been uh, faring probably overall better than than those with with low uh, public trust. And I think that the trust goes to uh, different directions. And I think there are several dimensions of trust. So in COVID, for example, there is trust among scientists. Then there is trust among, uh, between scientists and the policymakers. Then there is a trust between the policymakers and the, the citizens. And there is a trust between the scientists and the citizens. So I think this is a this is a broad, very and all of those links of trust need to be uh, up to uh, a certain level in order for the policies to, for them to be able to be functional and proper. So I think Nietzsche said at some point that um, uh, that. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not disappointed that you lied to me, but I'm. Uh, but I'm, I'm not concerned that uh, you lied to me. But I'm concerned of the fact that no longer I can trust you. Uh, so trust is also uh, in a in a way that uh, it 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 can create a negative feedback loop. A distrust creates distrust. Trust creates trust. So once you lose it, it's very hard to gain. So this is a. It is a very tricky situation in that sense. And, and you can see disenfranchisement because uh, the declining trust uh, of people to their governments that has been, I think that was just before, uh, um, uh, after the economic crisis, uh, always the average is dropped very, I think it was one out of three people didn't trust governments at all, uh, always see the average. I think it was just starting to turn around before the COVID crisis, uh, but now, um, we it, it, we don't still see the impacts of it yet, but uh, some things that I want to flag out that, for example, uh, what are already kind of symptoms of the distrust, like um, uh, that there are a lot of people being disenfranchised and start to look for the, another alternative. For, as, as I think Ian said well, that uh, ultimately these kind of mechanisms depend on the politician's will. As if the politicians don't uh, really support them, they don't go ahead. Uh, the, the famous example in the UK case was the Child Poverty Act of UK, which was a long-term uh, act of trying to abolish child poverty. Uh, then it was uh, done during the end of Tony Blair's government. And then there was a, a commitment device, a legal commitment device of trying to get uh, it through. But ultimately, once they started to realize the, the uh, the other incoming governments that it doesn't go through, then they started to change the goalpost in the in, in, for the poverty, and then ultimately it wasn't uh, the, uh, the end was that they will abolish child poverty until 2020, and they wouldn't. Um, so people are looking for alternatives, and we shouldn't fully write off uh, movements like, for example, Extinction Rebellion, which I think, for example, in the UK, and some people probably know this better than I do, but they are trying to demand uh, citizen assemblies on, on climate uh, change uh, 
So they are demanding that the government must create and lead, uh, be led by decisions of citizens' assembly on climate and ecological justice. So these are kind of alternative movements that are starting to uh, pop up because of mistrust towards the government. Um, and I think we shouldn't write them off. So we should be uh, looking quite broadly because I think that the old form of machinery of government is facing a uh, significant crisis. And I'm not sure that they are able to be overcome with just incremental changes in the way that policymaking in democratic governments work. Thanks. Yeah, I saw you wave your hand when you were talking about child poverty. Did you want to come in quickly on that? Just on that, I think the child poverty target is one of the things that gives legislated policy commitments a bad name. It was a totally cynical move by the Labour government to trap uh, what they thought was going to be probably an incoming Conservative government. They couldn't oppose the target because who on earth could say they were going to vote against a target of eradicating child poverty. But no one had a clue how they were going to do it. There was no underlying plan. So I think that's one of the things where it's really bad virtue signaling to you know, political crowd pleasers, but actually one of the things that really undermines trust in politicians. Yeah. Ian, I'm going to come to you next, but uh, because time is running on, can we just bring in the question from Chiara Girosa as well? So could you answer the question she's going to put and then add anything else that you might have been wanting to say? Chiara, I can see you're up on our screen. Could you unmute and put your questions? Hi, can you hear me? We can. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so my first question was uh, if, yeah, I was wondering if there was a danger in potentially locking in policy objectives based on our current understanding of, of our values. And here, I suppose I was, I was kind of thinking of, um, I don't know, people in the past thinking that, that slavery was 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 moral potentially, um, and if that was kind of locked in today, uh, that would cause a lot of harm. Uh, and my second question was: um, given the huge amount of pressing present-day problems, um, are there ways we could um, kind of convince people of the importance of protecting future generations in the long-term future? Um, yeah. Really good questions. Thank you, Kiara. Yeah. Over to you. Thanks very much. Really excellent um, questions. Um, I think uh, this question of do you lock in bads? Uh, and certainly, if we're not going to be changing our minds in 10, 20 years' time, we're not evolving. Uh, that's the scariest thought. If we're still thinking the same things in the future uh, as we think today. Um, so there has to be a built-in evolutionary process. And clearly, when it comes to so many things, and you highlighted one of the worst atrocities uh, of the past, but gender, what we're understanding about gender or gay rights today or Black Lives Matter, these things that come onto our agendas become center stage. And even the climate debates uh, were not anywhere where they are today. And our scientific understanding grows as we have um, you know, the capacity to look at ourselves from space and to measure things that couldn't be measured before and to understand them because the veil of secrecy has been lifted uh, about other places, about things that happen in our own governments, uh, et cetera. So we're learning all the time. And the more we learn, the more we need to be able to change our minds. And you're right. Uh, if you lock in the objectives of the past, how do you do that? My own sense is, is if these things are accountable to the present, they are likely to be able to uh, reflect the challenges of the present and particularly accountable uh, to young people in the present. And that raises the question, should we be changing the voting weights 
Uh, should we reduce the voting age, for example, to 16? Um, and uh, are there other ways that you can give greater power? Um, you know, people have youth commissioners and things, but they don't actually have any power. Um, so how else do you do it? Um, we now getting to recognition on boards and in parliaments that we need more gender representation of equality. But should we be thinking about that in a generational context as well, uh, in, in other representational forms as a way of securing that ability to, to do it? Um, and uh, then the question, of course, is how do you satisfy multiple objectives? And this, I think, touches on something which Jill and others uh, have mentioned, which is uh, listening to experts. And we're seeing that li very live and clear every day at the moment uh, with COVID-19, but we saw it in the financial crisis as well, um, as has been said. Um, experts don't have foresight. Uh, they, they, ba they base themselves on the knowledge they have, and they're highly ideological, and they're highly biased. Um, and so how do you challenge experts? And how do politicians challenge experts? And this going back to a question that Robert posed before about China, one of the great virtues of China, uh, the Chinese leadership and the Singapore leadership is that actually are experts themselves in many areas. They're engineers, they've uh, very accomplished and they do have an ability to really deep, dig very deep into expertise um, and understand it, embody it and challenge it. And I think having more technocratic politicians uh, not lawyers, maybe lawyers in the form of expertise, but uh, generalists, but the ones that actually have skills in other areas, uh, like the sciences, uh, like the humanities, philosophy and others, I think is extremely important as well to reconcile this. If I may just throw in one final thing on this gender question. Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the countries that have handled COVID best are run by women. How can it be that Finland, Denmark, Germany, uh, South uh, Taiwan, all have uh, in their areas the lowest incidences uh, and yet are women leaders. Is that pure coincidence? I find that very difficult to, to, to think of as a pure coincidence. I think there are many other things going on uh, as well, including the ability to communicate transparently and to admit failure and to be able to talk to experts in a much more open way without showing vulnerability. And incidentally, that was the one and by far the most significant thing that Nelson Mandela could do and taught me. He always admitted that he didn't understand things and he kept questioning and saying he didn't understand until he got it with the, with the experts. And I don't see other politicians doing that. They pretend they understand for long before they do. Thank you. Um, we're coming into our last five minutes yes. or so. So forgive me panel, I'm going to crack on uh, with what I think is our final question. And then uh, in a wrap up, I'm going to ask each of you um, just to conclude with some, some brief uh, final remarks. And our final question comes from Ewan Grant. Ewan, are you there? And if so, could you unmute and put your question? Now, I'm not hearing Ewan, so I'm going to put his question for you. Um, and it is, Regarding multinational, multi-agency cooperation, do you have examples of particularly good cooperation between different events or types of agencies or particularly bad examples? Um, Ian, you're unmuted, so would you like to go first? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, let's just take the WHO as one example. Um, 
the incredible things it's achieved as a multilat and, and it is a, a global agency, but it works with the CDC. In fact, the, the irony of the US accusing it of being captured by China is that everyone else thinks it was captured by the US and particularly by the Center for Disease Control in the US, the CDC. Uh, but it eradicated smallpox. Uh, it uh, has almost eradicated polio in the world. It's been hugely successful. And yet it's been disempowered. It hasn't been able, able to reform and so on. So it embodies the good and the bad of what multilateralism can do. The fight against HIV AIDS is another excellent example, uh, for example, where you had this coalition uh, that was built of civil society, protests, demanding, forcing the pharmaceutical agencies to take a leading role, uh, the development of a rollout. And although we haven't cured HIV AIDS, there's no vaccination and unlikely to be, um, the incidence of mortality of it has fallen dramatically because of the success of that after a very, very terrible and long struggle. But we learn a lot from that as we do from the closure of the ozone layer and some of these other successes where very different sets of actors come together, uh, not always governments. In the case of ozone, corporations also played a big role, uh, but it can be cities, it can be others and actually make a difference. So learning from these, and that's what the Oxford Martin Commission for future generations now for the long term, the report on our website really tries to do is highlight how you can learn from this. It obviously didn't have the WHO, but it has the CFC uh, and some other examples in it. Thank you, Ian. And I'm going to invite closing remarks from the panel in the order I can see you on my screen. So next, Jaco, and then Jonathan, uh, and finally, Joe. Jaco, you're next. Okay, uh, so I probably my closing remarks would be that I think that, you know, uh, looking at institutional setups and, and from my personal experience is that uh, we shouldn't necessarily look at these uh, novel, uh, like new magical institutions, but actually uh, long term governance overall uh, can be enhanced quite a bit by uh, connecting and consolidating ex existing institutions, because I think that there's a lot uh, low hanging fruits there that can be uh, uh, picked. And I think that there, uh, this uh, involves connecting the scientific community uh, to the foresight community uh, and that being connected to uh, the core of government, uh, the strategic units of the government, uh, and also introducing policy experimentation more broadly within the society. I think that's that's uh, those already are elements that are already existing within governments, uh, in most governments, and linking those up uh, systematically uh, can create a, a broader national network of, of long-term governance and you don't need these magical institutions of wise men necessarily and women uh, but you can actually do a lot in very uh, the, sometimes the answer is is very boring uh, actually you increase connections and, and effectiveness and efficiency and, and then you get uh, far ahead obviously that doesn't solve the broader uh, complex issues like the uh, in uh, the uh, the the nature of uh, information environment that we're presently at, which is which is quite a significant challenge, but that's already something that we can do uh, at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, again, thank you, Robert, for organizing this session. Uh, just a few very quick comments. The first would be uh, to say I'm a Democrat and I would like to see democracies succeed, 
Uh, and while I have enormous respect for what has happened in countries like Singapore, uh, which are sort of quasi democracies, uh, and uh, while I accept fully what uh, Jill has said about the capacity of countries like Singapore to plan for the future because the governments think they're going to be there for a very long time, um, we have to make sure, in my view, that democracies func function better to protect future interests. And, and that has to be uh, something other than keeping governments in power for many, many decades. So how do we do that? Uh, two or three very quick comments. Um, a number of people have talked about transparency and openness and truthfulness and so on. I think that is absolutely, absolutely crucial. Uh, we talked a little bit about trust. And, and can I say that my reading of the international evidence on political trust is that countries with high levels of inequality tend to have lower levels of trust political trust than countries which are more egalitarian in nature. And I think that if we're going to rebuild uh, uh, political trust, which has been fractured over uh, a number of years now across much of the developed world, if we're going to rebuild political trust, uh, then we are going to have to tackle some of the big social issues uh, that we face, including the fact that in, in many countries, the United States is a classic case, uh, lots and lots of people have missed out on the gains from globalization. Um, so tackling inequality, income and wealth inequality, in my view, is, is going to be crucial. If we fail, then populism is going to remain a virus uh, that will afflict democracies around the world and will make it more difficult, if not impossible, uh, to address the big long-term challenges we face, not only domestically, but because it will undermine multilateral organizations about which Ian has spoken uh, so eloquently. So thank you, Robert. That's all I'll say at this point. Thank you. And Jill, the last word is with you. So I've just, uh, building on what Jonathan said, I think that it is too easy to have politicians who like to pretend you can have everything, uh, picking up the cake and eat it sort of view, and don't have a serious conversation with the public about the trade-offs they're making and why they have to make them and how difficult they are and how complicated some of the issues are. And I think without that, you they probably don't deserve our trust. And if basically only women can have those conversations with the public, then we'd better have some women leaders is uh, my take out from Ian. Uh, but hopefully some of our men can learn to have those proper conversations with the public as well, so I think they can be let back in the political arena. Um, but I think we need to have transparency, but also a much more serious conversation about the choices that we all have to make. Thank you, all of you. Um, just before I formally thank you, let me give the trailer for next time. Um, the US has been the elephant in the room during these discussions, although mentioned from time to time. And in just two weeks time, we will have the American elections. And so our seminar next week, next Thursday at 6 p.m. is about the US elections. And it will be the launch event for a new center for the study of US politics uh, being launched by several of my excellent American colleagues in the UCL Department of Political Science. Uh, so please tune in next week for a preview of the American elections. But before you leave us tonight, could you join me please in thanking very, very much all our speakers. Thanks to Jonathan in New Zealand, to Jaco in Finland, Rian in Oxford and Jill in London. Thank you all of you very, very much. And, and thanks to you, Robert. Many thanks. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you, Ron. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. It's been a pleasure.